0: Hello and welcome to the Mindful Men podcast, a show helping men to open up about manhood. My name is Simon Rinney and my aim is to get men talking. From mental health to fatherhood and everything in between, Mindful Men creates a safe space for conversation. Now, before we get into this episode, I want to say a huge thank you for joining me. It means a world for you to join me and talk about men's issues and if you love what you hear please subscribe and share the episode with your mates. You can also join the conversation on Instagram and YouTube and I'd love to connect with you there but for now sit back relax and let's get mindful.
1: G'day guys and welcome to another episode of the Mindful Men podcast. My name is Simon Rinney and I'm the man behind Mindful Men. I'm absolutely pumped today. I've got Bart Walsh with me from the sunny coast, just down the road from where I'm recording today. And Bart is the head coach of Jets Fitness Australia. Now, before I get into talking to Bart, I wanted to share a little bit of a story. Um, So way back, I think it was 2020 or so, before COVID had hit and I I was going to Jets gym. I was a member there doing my J series. And I got talking to the club manager and he mentioned Bart's name as a great bloke to talk about men's issues and men's health and and well-being. So I was super stoked when Bart said that he'd be happy to come on to the Mindful Men podcast. So without trying to sound too creepy, Bart, your name has been on my mind for a few years and I'm super glad that you're here. So thanks for coming
2: on. Thanks for having me, Simon. It's a a pleasure to be here and it's not creepy at all, mate.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Um, now, the Mindful Men podcast is a show that aims to support boys and men to open up about pretty much anything from mental to physical health, um, to what's happening at school, what's happening at work. And I've had the pleasure of doing a few gym sessions with you when I was due at Jets Fitness, and I haven't been for a few years. COVID impacted my life a lot in terms of my health and fitness, and, and I've been in and out of gyms ever since the the world has opened up again. So it's good to see you again. Um, but I always like to start off and, and throwing it over to you to tell us a bit about who you are and how you come to be where you are today.
2: Yeah, sure, mate. I'm actually, I live on the Sunshine Coast, but I was sort of born and raised in northeast Victoria. I was actually born in Orbury, which I suppose is just New South Wales, if, if you know the geography of that area. And yep. uh, I grew up in a town called Wangarana. And um, my my mum and dad were both teachers. Dad was the principal of my primary school, which was a very interesting thing um, growing up. But I suppose to to nutshell everything, I had I had a wonderful childhood. You know, um, I had plenty of aunties and uncles, and I had two older sisters and a younger brother. And um, all the memories I have, just about all, um, are very positive and, and and very happy. And I consider myself very grateful for the way I was brought up and the environment I was brought up in. But I, I suppose I, um, I, my interests are very diverse and they still are at the moment. And being in that beautiful home environment and being in a good school environment, I, uh, I got into acting of yeah. uh, all things in high school, which there's, there's a whole lot of funny stories that sort of sprout from, uh, from that seed. But I had a wonderful teacher named Julie Nolan, um, uh, who was sort of the head of uh, drama and theater. And she really encouraged me to, to really pursue this, as a career and uh so I, there was a point in sort of year 10 or uh, or 11 where i had, kind of had to choose between playing afl footy which which mm-hmm. i really loved which now that i think back on it sort of started my love with of um, of physicality of movement or fitness so i had to choose between footy and acting and i decided to um be very theatrical and pursue a um an acting degree in university
0: mm-hmm. and
2: so that that's what i studied. it's funny but the position i have now really leads into having an exercise science or a um or sort of some sort of physical training degree but my my background is is in the arts which, yeah. which I think has really um benefited me you know the, being able to communicate clearly and tell stories and and, and know the the the, um, the weight of stories and how storytelling is sort of a very big part of our culture and um and so that's what I did at university a, um a three-year acting degree it was a, which was, I am a firm believer that everyone should do some form of physical or vocal art at some point in their life. And so we spent the first year sort of breaking down our body, rolling on the floor, finding resonance, doing movement classes, voice classes. And, um, uh, and then in the second year, we started looking at texts. We started looking at Shakespeare, some very traditional, um, uh, even sort of Greek mythology texts. And in third year, it's all about professional practice, sort of taking everything you learn from first and second year, putting you in this, um, putting it all together and shaping you as an actor. So that when you hit the industry, you have you have some sort of standard. Mm-hmm. And so um, obviously I made some great friends during that time, um, learned a lot about my body and about myself. Uh, and I think that sort of paves the way to my my perception on life at the moment. That was a very foundational part of my life. And then, um, and then I finished university, got an agent and was an actor for a for a wow. while, which is really interesting. And so I, um, I mainly did sort of stage work. I, um, my film credits were, I think, two episodes on Neighbours back in 2012 where I played a character called Miguel Ferreira. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell the Mexican complexion? <laughs> Not quite, but it was, um, um, it was an awesome time. I got, I got to meet some of the characters that were on the show at the moment. I got to understand how the show works. And for those who don't know, know who Neighbours is, or what Neighbours is, classic soap opera in Australia. and it's, it's, they, they run it like, like clockwork. So you're in this big room, and then you know, one scene in front of you, it's you know, Lou's house, and they pivot 15 degrees, and it's a new scene, and they pivot 15 degrees, and it's a new scene, so they can bang out episodes a day. It's, yeah. uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic place. Um, what else? I did the Doctor Blake Mysteries, which is an ABC show. I was, I was on an episode of that. Um, but I did lots of stage work, and I really liked the the forum of being in front of people and doing things live. Which again sort of form informs what I do now. I'm not one to stick to a, a script. <laughs> I, I like the the the, um, the connection between two people and the communication between two people. Yeah. But um, but mate, like looking looking back now, now that I'm a bit older, my childhood, my 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 high school years, my my uni years. I wouldn't. I wouldn't change for the world. They they really taught me some things that, that I didn't know at the time, obviously, but really shaped me to who I am today.
1: Yeah, and and two questions. One, who's yeah. your footy team?
2: <laughs> I, I'm a North Melbourne supporter, but I don't like to talk about it at the <laughs> moment. We are we are very poor, but I'm a I'm blue and white through shin shinbone my whole life.
1: I saw a good video of um, Glenn Archer's son telling him the other day that he was going to play his first game and brought Mr Shinboner himself to, to tears, which was a beautiful moment. Right, yeah. the Shinboner
2: of the century. I know, it's a, it's a, it was a very touching moment as well. And I think, I think his, um, his comments were, yeah, we're a very emotional family.
1: <laughs> I couldn't imagine um, that in that household, but it was good to see. Um, no. But did you go to uni in, in um, where you lived or did you move away for uni or?
2: So I went to uni at the University of Ballarat, which is now Federation University. But they have a really, um, it's, a, it's a wonderful place. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to Ballarat. It's a very old, mm-hmm. old, old mining town. It's like cobblestone streets everywhere, history around every corner. And so sort of in the middle of town is what they call the Arts Academy. And the Arts Academy is separate from the Mount Helen campus, which is a bit further out of town where all the teachers and, the, um, the normal degrees do their work. We, we sort of got this little um, little pocket of arts and uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful little community because I was doing an acting course, but there were people who did musical theatre alongside us, um, people who did fine arts, graphic arts, um, the, the whole gamut. So we, we got to hang around some very artistic individuals and almost, it was almost as if we lived in our own little world that yeah. just happened to be in the middle of a, a country town in Victoria.
1: Yeah, I didn't expect that. I thought you might have had to move to Melbourne or Sydney to do to do more art study.
2: Yeah, well, the uh, University of Melbourne, um, Victorian College of the Arts, is a wonderful art a whole host of arts degrees. Um, and of course, there's neither in WAPA, Warrap over in WA, neither in Sydney. But I really liked the um, the small town feel of Ballarat, so that's what I grew up with, and you know, eventually did move to Melbourne afterwards. But, um, you know, the city is not for me. I don't know about you, but I'm a country boy. And uh, I yeah. need trees, I need grass, I need space, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I grew up in Adelaide, so it's kind of like a big country town. Um, and I've dabbled in, in, in Brizzy, which is a slightly bigger country town, I'd, I'd say. Um, not many people yeah. say that, but I think it's, it's very similar to Adelaide and, and, and so forth. But what was it like moving from the, you said you didn't really like the city, but moving from the country to the city? How did that come about and, and what did you get up to? <laughs>
2: what did i get up to um, (laughs) yeah the the city's a great place and you know growing up in the country the, the first thing you want to do is get out of there and experience what you know the city and metropolitan areas are like but you know you live there enough the novelty wears off and then you realize why your parents sort of lived where they lived and why they grew you up where you grew up and i think there's something quite um Quite special about it, and I'm sure there's some great stats out there of the amount of people that sort of grew up in a rural town, moved and then moved back. I'm mm. sure there's quite a high percentage. But the city itself was—I had a really great city experience for for about a year of my life. I lived in, I think it was floor 12 of a 42-story building, so I, re, I lived that real city life where, you know, everything was 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 cement, and you know, I took an elevator to get home. It was. Um, uh, it was fun at, at the time, absolutely, and there were lots of people to, to meet. And um, The gym I was working at at the time was probably one of the best gyms I think I've ever been in, so, it, you know, it, it definitely served a purpose, but, you know, um, whether you, you take the country out of the boy, you can't take the boy out of the country, something like that. Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. Yeah. You mentioned that footy was a bit of a foundation mm-hmm. for your fitness pathway. When did you start working in gyms and, and getting that kind of bug?
2: So it was in my third year of university in Ballarat where I joined my first gym and it was an on-track fitness uh, on Sturt Street in Ballarat. I still remember the trainer I had. His name was Blair. He took me through my, my consultation, that sort of stuff. Um, uh, but I did it mainly for the aesthetics. So I understood that as, as bad as it is being in the acting industry, the way you look and the way you are perceived often dictate um, what roles you'll get. Yeah. And I tell this story a lot, but there was one role I went for, um, uh, I can't remember what the show was but it was on like a, a network called Stars or something really American and, um, uh, and the, the deal was you had to be just shredded to the bone and, and look a certain way so before the filming you went through a three month training camp um, to make you look a certain way I didn't get the role and I, I asked for feedback of why I didn't get the role and they said I was one inch too tall and my eyes were the wrong colour oh wow no, so it's, um, it, it, it's very cutthroat in terms of what some directors are, are looking for. And now some of that stuff's out of your control, but the thing that was in my control was my, my musculature or, or how I was perceived uh, on the camera. So that's sort of what got me into it. But little did I know that that introduction all those years in Ballarat just started this big snowball of curiosity on how the body works. And so sort of how the body responds to adaptation. And I really love the freedom of understanding that I could change my physiology through my actions mm-hmm. and we still can. And I still fundamentally think every person deserves to know how to change their physiology in whatever way they want through their actions. So it was a, a small beginning, but it sort of snowballed into a, into a, a career, I suppose.
1: Yeah, and here you are now, the head coach of Jets Fitness Australia. Um, big gym. It's got like a lot of gyms around the country, over 180 now.
2: and about 180 in Australia. There's 60-odd in New Zealand. we got 10 in the UK. Wow. Almost at 40 in Thailand, but we're in Vietnam and the Netherlands as well. So we're, internationally, we're growing. And in Southeast Asia in particular, um, uh, they have quite a flavour for our brand. So it's, um, it's good to be part of So my, my role predominantly stays within Australia, but yeah. it's good to know that the, the network spreads internationally.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. And, bit, and we'll get into your, your your role at Jets Fitness in a little while, but um, I'm a big fan of your Instagram page. You, you're, you're very open um, about some hardships that you've gone through over the years. And I'd love to, to, to talk a bit about this and, and kind of like the mindset and the things that you did to kind of push your way through all these different, different hardships. And, and, you know, 23 years old, you were diagnosed with a rare and aggressive tumor under the right side of your jaw. Um, and I remember reading the the news.com article about your time in hospital, and you're getting quite, I guess, angry at some of the, the other patients in there getting pushed around in wheelchairs and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. But can you tell us a bit about this time and, and from, you know, when you were diagnosed and, and what that felt like to you and then maybe how it impacted your life?
2: Absolutely. Um, a very, very formative year of my life um, when I was 23, back in 2014. I, um, I just finished a youth conference. I, I volunteer for a, um, um, a non-for-profit called Wiley. league They're actually based up here in Brisbane. They're a wonderful non-for-profit and um, I still love my connection with them. I just finished a conference and I, I realized that there was a lump sort of growing under my jaw and me being you know, a typical twenty-two, year old male, nothing can kill me. I didn't think anything of it yeah. uh, until it started growing. And so I um, uh, obviously got it checked out and it's actually a really interesting story. The first doctor I saw just said, yep, that's a lump. Let's, let's cut that sucker out and let's move on. And then the night before that surgery, um, I got a call from the doctor's office and uh, the receptionist said, look, the doctor forgot he was going on holidays that day. Uh, he thought he, he was going the next day, so we can't do your surgery. Let's reschedule. And I said, don't worry about it. I'd, I'd like to get a second opinion anyway. Yeah. Uh, and so I got the second opinion. I got the biopsy. Uh, and about this time, it was about the, the tumor was about the size of a baseball, 10.2 centimeters in diameter. So it's quite obvious. And then uh, I got diagnosed with uh, a peripheral, a uh, malignant peripheral nerve sheet tumor. A sarcoma so it grew within about the space of six weeks mm. and then i later found out that if i had gone through with the surgery of the first doctor the odds of the cancer cells still being there are very high because when you take out a sarcoma you have to take a margin and so you can see the margins quite large on my neck mm-hmm. here. and if the doctor didn't take out a margin the odds of that that cancer spreading was very high so there was something sort of uh, The universe was doing some sort of wisdom on that day to make sure that doctor went on holiday and I didn't have that surgery. But from there, the the process was um, a little bit convoluted. So it was growing very fast. And so the the question was, do we cut it out and then do radiation or do radiation therapy and then cut it out? And the choice was to get it out as fast as possible and do the radiation therapy thereafter. And so the operation was... uh, quite confronting at first. Mm. It was about sort of three days there without going through what the operation would look like. And there was a point there where um, they were gonna to have to take my voice box. And so yeah. for, for a couple of days there, I thought I was trying to comprehend what my life would look like without being able to speak. And so what I did was I got a notebook out and I just I wrote everything that was on top of my mind, uh, which now turns out to be a great activity for me to get things out of my head but I filled the entire notebook with, with words. And then I had another, another meeting with the doctor, and they said, look, we don't have to take your voice box. This is good. And so then I threw that notebook out because I don't to be I to do want to read what was in there. Um, I can't remember to say what was in there, but the operation didn't take my voice box, but did have to take the floor of my mouth, my mouth, my teeth on my, on my right-hand side, uh, and a little bit of my tongue. Mm-hmm. And so they, they took the tumor out sort of like a short rib. So the tumor was on the bone. They took the whole thing out and then replaced it with a bone in my leg, my fibula. And so the tissue you see here and the tissue that sits inside my mouth is actually my quad.
1: Okay. So they
2: took some skin from my upper leg and so it just just squished everything together, and then um uh, and inside it up. So the um the recovery process was was long. I was I was on liquids for. I think three or four months so I couldn't couldn't eat solids I was breathing through a hole in my neck for for maybe two or three weeks after the surgery had to learn to, to, to breathe again to swallow mm-hmm. again and this is a really tough thing that comes to mind you know, I spent all these years working on my voice as an actor you know finding resonance learning plosive sounds and um, really understanding how to use my voice to portray a message and after the surgery and still now my voice is quite different Mm-hmm. And it's quite hard for me to to hear that, especially after all that training. So my partner at the time um, was an actor as well, and uh, we often did lines together when she did auditions, and I heard my voice on the recording of her doing a um, a self- take or something. I just couldn't bear it. Yeah. couldn't bear yeah. it in in the slightest. And I think that was one of the hardest things to sort of get around that um, the way I the way I communicate something that I'm very passionate about is very different now. And so. Um, Re- rehab was rehab uh, i was uh, uh if, if you can name any solid meal i can guarantee you i tried to liquefy it and drink it steak and potatoes pesto chicken i needed some variety uh, yeah. and none of it was very good um my leg was quite compromised mm-hmm. because of the bone they took out so my, my gait, the way i walked was different and i don't know at at it's funny when i look back on it now i i look back on myself as 23 and i I really i think i was really looking for something and so i was was searching for attention through acting and and the way i behaved at parties and stuff like that was um very me 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 well that's the way i perceive it now and then this happened and i i I don't think i knew how to how to feel yeah because it's, it's it's such a big it's such a big thing that happens to you and you can't prepare for it in the slightest. And you do have to quite literally take it minute by minute, day by day, hour by hour, uh, and do things sometimes to distract you until you're recovered enough to, to process everything. And I don't think I'll ever get to a point in my life where I've fully comprehended what's happened. Mm -hmm. But as the years go on, you know, things make more sense to me. And the way, the way I think I felt back then does make sense. But at the time, Um, I think I was just a bit, a bit ignorant to my, to my own feelings. Yeah. And the way it sort of impacted my life at the moment, I think it's, I think it's turned out to be quite a positive thing, but that's the way I like to think about it. And so now the way I sort of see adversity, if there's something bad happens to you, yep, it's bad. And at the moment you feel, you feel the way you feel, but the knowledge that I'm going to be stronger at the end of this is at the forefront of my mind. Yeah. And so I think of that in, in most workouts, you know, that um, the adversity you find in a workout is the knowledge of you getting stronger after the fact. And that really helps to persevere. So I, I, lo- I, like, I love the line that my, my partner told me um, uh, a little while ago of make the love greater than the loss. So mm-hmm. if, if you if you've lost something, you can choose through your actions and, and through the way you think and the way you feel to turn that into a positive in some way, even though it is inherently quite negative on, on the outset. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And going through that, like that period when you're, you know, in 23, 24 and, and, and onwards, did you have a support network around you to, to work through that or was it a lot of it individualised? Um, tell us about that support.
2: I have, I have a wonderful family and I really, I really feel sorry for what my mum went through when I was sick. You know, I've seen, I, I, it was bad for me, mm-hmm. but I imagine it would feel um, bad for her and my father having to see me go through it and not being able to to do anything about it. And that being said, they, um uh, you know, they were with me every night. It was sort of the first couple of weeks in hospital, I didn't want to be alone mm-hmm. in, the, in the hospital room, just in case I, I, I was breathing through um, a, a trachea and you know, a hole in my neck and Often it got clogged,
0: mm-hmm. and the
2: fear of falling asleep and choking was was really real. And so, Mum stayed on the um, uh, on the couch next to me. So my partner at the time, Meg, she's um she really helped me through that process, and she's still being an actor and doing her her creative things at the moment, which I really respect. Um, but both of them in particular were um uh, were there for me every single step of the way, and not to mention people from afar as well. I got. Um, I got cards from, you know, primary schools in Wangaratta that, um, uh, that sent me good, good luck cards and get better soon. All my friends and family from, you know, eons ago um, uh, were there. My, my best mate, Timmy Mac, at the time gave me a, a hard drive with just heaps of, you know, television shows and movies yeah. on it, which really, really helped me through. And, um, yeah, my my support network was, was very strong. And I suppose that sort of planting the seeds of this concept of, you know, we are stronger together and it, and it does take a tribe and it is very true. But I do, I do remember saying at the time as well, um, I, I have so much support around me. I understand that, but I also have never felt so alone. because mm. it's, hard to, it's, hard to, it's hard to translate the way you feel because no one else has that empathy. No one else has that diagnosis that I knew of uh, around me. So there was sort of a, a part of the journey where, you have to internalize it and, and and put it on yourself to work through. But I always found great comfort in in having other people there. And even just, they don't need to be doing anything, but just, you know, having someone there was um, in, integral. And to be honest, still is.
1: Yeah. A lot of guys really struggle with opening up about what's happening internally and, and feeling that isolation when they're going through something. Was that something that you found easy to talk about, given that you had a good support network around you? Or did you still found it quite difficult to open up about what was happening inside for you?
2: um, Initially, I struggled. I really struggled with with talking about it. Um, I think I was very ashamed of it, in a way. And um, I got really sick of telling the same story again and again and again and again, even even if that story was was true um, uh, or not. But it was also sort of the first time that I experienced anxiety and understanding what, what that feeling is. And um, I don't know. I, I, I think, I think having the support network there was, um, was, was very important. And I I do feel sorry for people who are going through the same sort of situation and don't have that support network there with them but in terms of um, uh, opening up that sort of happened a little bit later down the track you mentioned that that news article mm. um, um where if i recall i look back on it now and i read that article on, on news.com and I, I just see a boy who just didn't know where to place his feelings and that yeah. kind of goes back to me not knowing how to feel and so i sort of put that blame on um on the universe you know why is this happening to me and why why is it that people can um treat their body like trash and sort of and, and live this way I do understand now that that was def- definitely mis- misled application of rage um, but once that article hit I woke up to thousands of comments and and, and, new, and you know news um the media trying to get in touch to, to get an interview and, mm-hmm. and I had to push all that to the side I couldn't uh, the sort of trying to to try to um uh, vocalize what I was feeling was, was impossible. Um, so it did take a while to open up. And to be honest, I don't think I'm very – I haven't hit the nail on, head, on the head on how to open up um, mm-hmm. fully just yet. My beautiful partner often jokes about when we met that it was like a fortress. Yeah. Uh, she, she knew something, something really good and juicy was inside there and loving, but you had to just break through layer after layer of, um, of, of brick almost before you can find that core in those feelings and I, I do i do find myself sort of acting that way with other people still yeah i think that's mainly because um of, of who i am the thought of my story triggering someone else or or causing someone to feel um bad in that moment i, I don't want in, in the slightest so often i'll avoid the harsh stuff and sort of either change the conversation or move the conversation onto something lighter, just to make that moment a bit easier for the other person. Uh, so it, it's it's a skill, you know, opening up on how you're feeling. And to be honest, understanding how your body is feeling is a skill as well. Like I yeah. said, when I was 23, I had no idea what what was happening through what was happening in my, in my head, or, or or how to process it. But um, but now I can see it a little bit more clearer. But um, still working on it.
1: I yeah, can. and these things do take time sometimes for my my experience so I've lived with depression and anxiety obsessive mm. compulsive disorder for 30 years and it took a good 20 years to to open up and, and start talking and if it wasn't for my now wife who basically pushed me to go see my GP and just say something's not quite right I don't mm. know where I'd be today and that's 10 years ago now so um, I'm,
2: something I'm, about that, that dichotomy—hey, kind of the, the the male feeling this way, but the the, the female being yeah. able to do something to us to to action something. Like that. there's something evolutionary there. Yeah. I think exactly what happened to me as well.
1: Definitely, and 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 I'm I am so grateful that you are willing to share your story today. I know it can be difficult, um, as you as you've expressed. So I really am thankful for you opening up and. And the reason I do this podcast and, and Mindful Men on Instagram and so forth is is kind of the opposite of what you were just saying is in terms of if I can share my story and, and the stories of of guys and girls around the world. I've interviewed uh, females as well.
2: Mm-hmm. And it
1: helps just one person to open up and say, oh, something's not quite right here. Um, maybe I'll go see my GP or see someone that I trust and just have a chat about what's going on. Um, I guess that's the whole purpose of what we're trying to, to achieve here. So... um. But I wanted to talk a bit about recovery now. So you've gone through this quite a you know, this cancer, quite aggressive and 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 serious cancer. And and you mentioned it changed your body, um, the way you walked and, and the way you talked and that, and all that type of thing. So what did recovery look like for you in those those months afterwards and if not years afterwards?
2: Um to be honest, and still dealing with this now, the, the hardest thing for me was um eating.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: I've lost all my teeth, all, all the bone teeth on this side of my mouth. So had to learn to only chew on one side and I lost a bit of my tongue as well so to manipulate food in my mouth so in terms of recovery process look the physicality of the leg is fine the bone they took is just a load-bearing bone so it's not necessary for um it's not functional for for movement just mainly to, to brace the leg so that um that heals quite quickly. There was a staple still stuck in my quad for a long time, which mm-hmm. they, they eventually, the nurse eventually took out. But the scars are still there. So I still struggle with um, a bit of range of motion through my hip flexor and my quad. Um, but the, the eating was the hardest part. It took me a, a long time to get back onto solid foods. And it's, it's funny with radiation therapy that the way they do it is that they, they sort of make a mask of your face. With like frills, and then they lie on the bed and then pin that mask to the bed. So that every time they shoot radiation into you, it's in, the, it's in the same spot and horrifying um, at the time. So I, I struggled with breathing and swallowing, but what radiation did to my taste bud was really interesting too. So the foods, I could not eat the foods that I used to like, but I didn't, my taste was different. Mm-hmm. So for example, I found tomato sauce for whatever reason spicy at the time, which, which has now changed, thank God, because tomato sauce is delicious. But finding a way to get back into the rhythm of eating the foods that I like and finding the foods that I like was um was a real struggle. Mm-hmm. And even now at the moment, I avoid um avoid really crunchy. This is a very strange thing. I avoid really crunchy food because I can't chew it uh, as as predominantly. My my jaw is now misaligned because there's a lot of compensation from just chewing on this side. So I often try and find sort of really mushy foods and slow-cooked mm-hmm. foods that, um, uh, that I can chew and digest a bit better. Um, uh, the voice, that's what I've sort of talked about a little bit there, but in terms of like um, uh, cancer-wise, that's, that's all gone, thankfully. The, the, the people at the Peter Mac Cancer Centre in Melbourne really took it after me. Um, uh, so that seemed to, um, seemed to go away by itself. So the radiation that they did zap must have zapped you know, all the excess cells that were there after the surgery. Um, and now sort of the, um, uh, the only limitations I have are sort of due to another reason and not, not necessarily the surgery itself.
1: Yeah. Okay. So we just touched on uh, your cancer battle and your cancer recovery. And, and I guess um, you're a man that's overcome multiple, I guess, hardships over, over time and over your life. And last year you had another diagnosis of hereditary sensorimotor peripheral neuropathy. That's a Brilliant. bit of a, a tongue yeah. twister. And you shared this on your Instagram because you're, you're going to CrossFit Games this year. Um, I which is super exciting and, and congratulations as well. Um, but tell us about this diagnosis and and how it's impacted you, I guess, in the lead up to, to going to the CrossFit Games.
2: Absolutely. I knew, I knew for a long time that my my legs in particular my lower legs so there's something going on there and early on in my in my life i had an eye doctor say you you know you've got a condition called neurofibromatosis which is a different condition than what we're about to talk about and so i sort of took that to gospel without actually getting a real diagnosis and so i sort of attributed my uh, my shortcomings in my lower limbs to that but it sort of wasn't until um a couple of years ago where i decided to uh, to stop sweeping things under the carpet and sort of get, get down to what's actually happening with my body. And so from about the age of 17, 18, 19, somewhere around there, my my below my knees has started getting skinnier and skinnier and skinnier. The muscle have been wasting away. The feeling is becoming less and less. So now mm-hmm. I don't, I don't I have very little feeling below my knee. And my my ankles are slowly starting to sort of fuse. So the range of motion of so plantar flexion in my foot is almost nil. And so uh, I went and saw a neurologist and she was awesome. She was um, uh, in, did what's called a conduction test. And uh, she gave a running diagnosis of um, hereditary motor sensor peripheral neuropathy, which I'm slowly getting my tongue around. <laughs> the, uh, the old school term is charcot marie Tooth disease or CMT. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it sort of encapsulates a whole heap of disorders under this one umbrella. And um, unfortunately, I've, I've done the genetic tests for all the CMT panels and um, we don't know which gene of mine is, uh, is affected. And so I can sort of go down the path of figuring out what, what that gene is, but it'll cost thousands of dollars. And the, um, uh, we, we, we can assume what's happening to me is very similar to, to other gene SNPs. And so what it means basically is I'm slowly using the use of my peripheral nervous system. So my, my legs and my arms, central nervous system, brain and spinal cord, peripheral nervous system, sort of everything else. And um, the, the, the condition itself is hard to predict. So for some people, they'll sort of get to the state where I'm at now and they'll stay the same for the rest of their life. So they might still have some function going into older age. But what we often see is just a slow demise and loss of um, the nerves in your extremities. And so it it appears in my hands a little bit as well, which was unbeknownst to me. The neurologist said, yep, you've got signs of it in your hands too, which is very surprising because my forearm and arm strength is very strong, but my my leg strength isn't very much. Um, And so we kind of have to open up the the conversation about um, how it affects my lifestyle. So, um, uh, I'll have to get what's called hand controls in cars because mm-hmm. suddenly my feet will, won't, won't be able to, to, um, to work. I have to get certain stents put on my legs to help with my drop foot. Um, uh, and then hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see. Um, uh, hopefully I'll be able to walk for a few more years, but there might come a time where I'll need crutches or, or, or a wheelchair, depending on the, um, the state of the condition. Um, but the funny thing is, is when I got diagnosed, I knew, I knew it was happening. I didn't know the name of the condition, but I knew that that was the roundabout thing that was happening to me. So it didn't come as much as a surprise. So I think I started I started processing what's happening to me early on, but, um, uh, it's funny. I, um, I've always wondered why I was really into like crazy socks, yeah. um, you know, different colored socks. And I think it's sort of a subconscious way of me saying, Hey, I'm not ashamed of these little broomsticks on, on my legs. Um, and sort of making fun of myself before other people make fun of me but that could be why and so um, one thing that this diagnosis gave me was um, eligibility for a division in the CrossFit games called the neuromuscular division and look I've been doing functional fitness for, um, for for all of my life I've identified that that way of training whether it's a CrossFit methodology or sort of the, the, the byproduct I've been doing for many many years um, gets you some really good results in a really quick amount of time and so um, I joined a gym up here on the coast called CrossFit Sisyphus mainly because of the coaches there Mike and Brett Um, uh, it's hard for um, the head coach of a uh, of, of an international company to find a coach who's willing to coach them to their ability and and these guys can do that and so um, you know, I joined that gym. They've taught me to work with my my abilities rather than try and be someone I'm, uh, I, I I could never be. And so um, last year CrossFit first time first time for the CrossFit Games put on the adaptive division. And so we sort of said, look, let's not apply for that. Let's just see how that that pans out. And then the next year, let's see how we go. And so sort of a hail mary, I um, I, I put myself in the division. I went through the first round of, um, of qualifying, which is called the CrossFit Open ticked that box. Went through the semi-finals about three weeks ago, which was um, six workouts over three days done in in my gym, um, uh, and ticked the box there. I managed to make the top five, and the top five from that category get an invite to Madison, Wisconsin, uh, in August. So I was lucky enough to to make it through that category, and um, uh, and get the invite. And so now the the preparations for the for the CrossFit Games has begun, and it is terrifying. <laughs> but where it got, we're very exciting at the same time. It's uh it, it sort of reminds me of being on stage again. Like yeah. I don't know before, before you do like a speech or something, you know you get those butterflies in your stomach, but you know those butterflies are a good thing. Yeah. Because that's that's where that's that, that's a whole part of the whole process. So I've been having butterflies for the last two weeks and we'll probably have butterflies for the next six weeks. Yeah. Um, um yeah, super excited to 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 celebrate my body and what it can do on an international stage. So it's um a very exciting
1: time. Are you going to be wearing any special socks for the occasion?
2: Uh, I'll try, but they, they sort of um, they mandate what you can oh. wear because of sprinters and, and stuff like that. So, look, I'll, um, wherever there's an opportunity, I'll, um, I'll show a bit of ankle flare, but um, uh, they, they keep pretty tight tabs okay. on, uh, on that. <laughs> yeah.
1: So do you remember the socks? I, used to, I just love the socks when I was going through the gym and seeing you walk past and I'm um, always envious of a good, good pair of fancy socks, so... Um, <laughs> But your partner's got a GoFundMe page um, set up to help you get over there. That is that right?
2: She does. The um the when budgeting for this, I was so surprised about how much it would cost. It's um it's outrageous. So there's a lot of inflation happening in the states at the moment. Accommodation is outrageous. And so um, it's going to cost about twenty thousand dollars to get over there. So um, Jane has put together a GoFundMe page. I think we're at right, about five thousand dollars at the moment, which which helps a lot. Um, uh, if the page is still up when people listen to this or watch this, um, uh, uh, do a little Google, maybe we can put it in the show notes or something. Yeah, or something.
1: we'll be putting the link in the show notes.
2: Don't you worry definitely. about that. Um, yeah, just to help out. So, um, you know we've we've got a, a baby on the way very soon, and um, I don't want to dig us into too much debt. Yeah. I, I feel rather selfish for doing that, but um, yeah, it costs a lot of money, but it's definitely worth it.
1: Wow, it's, it's inspirational. I'm excited. Do they um put it up on the web, or how can people watch it if they wanted to watch Absolutely. it?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, there'll be a, there'll be a live stream. So there'll, there'll be a live stream for most of my events, perhaps not all. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but if you jump on the CrossFit Games website, they'll be able to inform you when those live streams are on. It's just through YouTube, um, and those videos will be up there for after the event as well. So if you're watching this after, feel free to go and have a squeeze.
1: Now you you mentioned you're about to become a dad again.
2: Very exciting. Yes.
1: How, how far
2: away are you? Um, what's the date? Any minute we're, now? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's, um, the, the, so the last couple of days, Jane's been saying, yeah, she's been feeling a bit different. So we, we know there's some stuff happening. The baby's dropping a bit. Um, her energy's sort of dying down. She's quite hyperactive. And to see her lying on the couch for once, it's, uh, it's quite a sign. So to be honest, I think it's going to be any day, but sort of, um, you know, mid next week, which might be, you know, four or five days away. I think that's when it's going to happen. Mate, I am so excited. The Robonzo technique, I'm all down on it. I'm going to shake the tree. I've got all my pressure points figured out. It's, um, I'm pumped. It's going to be a good time.
1: And you'll forget all about that. (laughs) (laughs) Make it from experience.
2: (laughs) Great advice, mate. Thank you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Just take each day to the
2: eh? like... <laughs> Got it. I appreciate it.
1: But um, I guess this this opened up a bit of a a uh, I guess a segue to maybe a time that is a bit hurtful for you in 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 parenting and so forth. And and on your Instagram, you're very open about this type of stuff. And and last year, you posted about the International Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. So I was keen mm-hmm. to hear a bit about this story and and what you can share from it.
2: Absolutely. So this, this pregnancy that we're going through now is, uh, is our second. Our, um, our firstborn son, his name was Aurelian. He was born in October like 2020. And unfortunately, he passed away shortly after he was uh, he was born. At the, the 20-week scan, we knew something was, um, was wrong with him. And so we sort of had a choice there to sort of end things where it was, knowing that the prognosis was very slim or um, well let him run his own race and sort of see where see see where he'd get so obviously we, we chose the lacquer so jane got the 30 weeks and then we had uh, an elective cesarean but we, we we got to meet the little guy we got, we got to hear him cry um mm-hmm. you know he got to give his mum a bit of a kiss uh, and then um uh, yeah he, he, he slowly but very peacefully passed away in jane's arms uh, yeah. afterwards it was a a, a, a very tough time and i think a, little, a few minutes ago i mentioned um make the love greater than the loss that was our that was our mission with Aurelian, and we uh, we think we have and we 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 know he's still here we know he's still around us we know that he's helping other little babies out there somehow yeah. jane very um unselfishly pumped breast milk for a long time after Aurelian passed away and, um, uh, and donated that breast milk to, to her best friend. So um, her, um, her best friend's daughter, Nina, um, has a beautiful special connection with, with Aurelian. And we also gave a bit of milk to um, Alana and Charlie, who are a part of our, um, uh, our gym as well. So Aurelian also has a connection with little Charlie. Yeah. So his, um, look, his, his legacy is far bigger than we thought it would be. Um, uh, not to say it, it was an easy thing to go through, but we um we understood early on in the process that if we if we bottled it up and just kept it to ourselves, it would just fester away and slowly, slowly eat us alive. So we were um very consciously brave to openly talk about it. One thing Jane gets a lot at the moment is um people coming up and rubbing your belly and asking, Oh, is it your first? And we were very adamant on saying that even if it hurts people for that short connection or that short time we we can't say yes it is our first because it's uh, it's not mm-hmm. so the conversation goes look we have we this is our second our first one passed away shortly after um after being born but we made the love greater than the loss and we're very excited for the second little one mm-hmm. so um we we understood that being open about it and talking about it um would be hard obviously um but it definitely helped us in, in our grieving process and it's made it's amazing how many people are going through a similar yeah um, uh, uh, a similar situation, and we wouldn't be having those conversations with those people if we weren't so open about it. So, us being uh, being brave in the short term will will help us a lot uh, in the long term, that's for sure. And so, I'm also very aware that this conversation can be quite triggering for people as well, yeah. and um, yeah. um, you know, I don't want that to sort of uh, dampen anything in their day. So. Um, if if something does trigger me or Jane, it always helps us to talk about it. So I um, will always encourage people to talk through these things, even though it's really hard.
1: Yeah, and did did you have any specific? Well, first of all, I'm sorry to hear hear that that loss. As a dad myself, um, I couldn't imagine life without my two little terrors. Um, but and and you know, my mum went through something similar. Like so, my, a year before I was born, mum had a, a little girl. Uh, her um, name her name's Emma. Uh, and I passed away and I always joke with mum saying if it wasn't for her attempt to have another girl in her life I wouldn't be (laughs) here because she tried again for another girl she got two more boys so she's got four boys in the house now Um, but yeah my heart really does break for you but also I am I'm glad that you're talking about it because as we said before it's just if you can help one person, although it makes a lot of people uncomfortable talking about this type of thing. If you can help one person or inspire one person to to speak up about their own situation and, and get help, um, that's a wonderful thing as well. Um, and did you have any specific supports to help you through that? Did you see a counsellor, a psychologist, or did you just rely back on family? Or
2: yeah, we saw we saw a psychologist for for a time there that really helped us out. Um, mm-hmm. We're both quite hyperactive, and so being able to sort of sit still and and, um, <laughs> uh, and, and be present was, was tough for both of us, but now we both find great benefit in it. But there was one, um, uh, the only children's hospice in, in Queensland, the Hummingbird House, were incredible. Yep. So the way it sort of works is that this organisation give families with, um, with children who are life-limited or have just passed away a place to go to called Hummingbird House, which is sort of in Chermside, I think. Mm-hmm. And after Aurelian was after Aurelian passed away, they helped us, you know, transport his body to Hummingbird House, where they have a special room called the Hummingbird Suite. Mm-hmm. And the Hummingbird Suites kept it, I think, three degrees, so very cold so the body doesn't um, doesn't fade away physiologically. So we got to spend seven days with Aurelian and um, you know that's something we 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 could never ask for. And uh, because of them, we have memories now that we will you will know, we'll, we'll, we'll always remember. And they they also provide us sort of with uh, with grieving uh, uh, tools. So there was a great um, a great chaplain there who who helped us understand this beautiful this beautiful dance between between life and death, and they have a bit of a, a different perspective on it. And they um yeah they do wonderful things. So when we were there, we were sharing the the house with um, you know tens of other of other families. Um, which was very harrowing because we we sort of all knew we were there for for the same reason and mm-hmm. there was a there was strange complicity between us even though we've never met each other before but the nurses that work there are just they are like every nurse is an angel full stop but the the, the nurses at um at hummingbird house or something else you know so they um that network and that service helped us out immensely. So we, we try and raise money for them every year by doing a workout for Aurelian in October. Mm-hmm. But I know they do a, a campaign with Coles most years as well where you can pay two bucks to donate to the to Hummingbird House. So highly recommend, um, particularly if you're in Queensland, looking into what they do and then supporting them in any way they can because they give gifts that can't be given. And yeah. we're, we're very appreciative.
1: Wow. That's, that's an amazing, i oh, yeah, be sure to put um, Hummingbird house link in the show notes as well, just so people can have a look if they need to. Um, but yeah, you're about to become a dad again. Very exciting. Yeah. Very daunting. <laughs> and then yes. you're off to CrossFit. So this is good, good preparation yeah, for
2: CrossFit. Mate. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a busy couple of months, Hey, You know, uh, but you know, day by day, right? Day by day. And, day uh, by day. and, and we'll, we'll see what happens. We will. Now, so you
1: Tremendous uh, hurdles that you've had to overcome in your journey, but let's talk about Jets Australia and your role as head coach there. How did this come about? Like, did, were you, you know, managing a gym? How did you manage to get the this lead role in in a really big international company?
2: Mate, it's a, it's a story of the stars aligning and something that I mean that again, I think the universe had some sort of some sort of role in, you know. We, we always identified the Sunshine Coast would be a place where we wanted to live when me and Jane were living in Melbourne, but we never had an opportunity to move up there. So um, um, I, I've got a role helping helping your colleague open up an F45 in, in Batinia, which is an awesome studio, by the way. And If you're if you're an F45, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a huge studio, um, and Sonny did an awesome job setting it up. I think he's, he's in Airlie Beach now opening up a new, a new F45. Wonderful businessman. So I helped him open up that, um, that uh F45, but I've got to say I didn't really align with the brand value-wise. So, you know, I handed in my resignation, and a week later, um, I started having a conversation with Jets. They were looking for a new sort of um, fitness manager or, or head coach, and I met with Mark, who's sort of my my direct manager here, and then a really good friend. And um, uh, he took me through the role, and then I had a chat to EJ, who's office of I'm in at the moment as well. Sorry, EJ, I stole your office. <laughs> um, and we, she just started talking about the values of, um, of Jets and Jets is founded on a very strong mission, purpose, vision, and a strong set of values. And during that conversation, I was, I was on cloud nine because everything she talked about are very core values of myself. And so um, for whatever reason, they thought I was right for the role and, um, uh, and I got the job and it's, I am, I'm so lucky. I live on the Sunshine Coast. I have a very diverse and very dynamic role in which I have some influence um, uh, of what I do. Uh, but, uh, and I, I, to be honest, I couldn't be happier. The, the Jets, jet, as, as you know, mate, like Jets, blah, blah, and, you know, the, the team members there, Tommy in particular. Jets is just awesome. The, the, the business owners, the managers, there, there's a culture there that I have, a culture here, and thankfully I'm a part of it, that is unreplicatable in any other big organization like this. So <laughs> I feel very grateful to be a part of it and being, feel very grateful to, um, to have some influence in it. And um, I'm really excited sort of where we're going to be in the next sort of few years, that's for sure.
1: Wonderful. And what does a, a day in the life of a head coach look like?
2: That's actually, Mate, it's, it's it's very interesting. So my, my role sort of started with just looking at um, J Series, which is our high intensity group exercise product. And so my role was to program the workouts that were that were on the screen. But slowly my role sort of evolved into having a look at sort of equipment innovations and what equipment are we putting into clubs, um, the music. So I have a bit of a role in the music that happens um, in Jets clubs, particularly during J Series sessions. But I've also sort of started looking at product development. So, we have, we have a wonderful, cool um, six week challenge um, product that's getting a, a big upheaval at the end of this year, which is really cool. You know, I'm looking at nutrition products. Um, you know, I'm developing a whole heap of things behind the scenes, which I really can't really talk about at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, golly, what else? Um, a podcast. So yeah, to just we... saw that. Yeah. yeah. We ourselves have <laughs> just started a podcast too. We work uh, with Copy Designer. Um, uh, it's called Personal Best. Yep. So we, we we record that every Wednesday, which is which is a lot of fun. And we have, first of all mad respect for people who do this often. It's a, it's a hard gig sometimes to be engaging in, and and do all that. So but I'm, I'm really enjoying that, my my inner actors coming out doing that. A lot of <laughs> online content as well, coach training. So often I'll you know fly out to Victoria or New South Wales to deliver J series or personal training training. So it's um everything to do with fitness on a national level. I I have a hand in and um. Yeah, again, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful.
1: And what's next? You, you mentioned there's a few things in the pipeline and you don't have to tell, them, tell us what they are, but like, are we talking growth to the moon um, yet? Are we, um, what's, what's the next yeah. five years maybe looking like for Jets?
2: Look, the best, one of the best things that I think Jets is doing at the moment is our Gen 4 gyms, blah, blah is one of them. So when I came to the company, Jets to me was carpet on the floor, with blue dumbbells and sort of aged equipment. And that was my perception. But the, the new gyms that we're rolling out and the refurbs that we're rolling out are something really special. They're special to me because that's where I do a lot of my training. I train a lot um, at my local CrossFit gym, but I also train a lot at Forest Glen. I don't know if you've been to that gym yet. Mate. No, not it's, yet. It's, um, you've got to, it's, um, it's a real indication of where we're heading. It's a very high roof, lots of space, great room for, for, for functional fitness. And I'm very aware that the, the public at large still sees JETS as what we were in 2007. But um, one big thing I'm hoping to influence in the next few years is to get public perception of what we're doing um, with, 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 our, with our new gyms and with, um, with our refurbs. You know, all the equipment's hand-picked by yours truly, the, the floor plans are manicured by me, so I'm making sure that there's enough room for people to be able to deadlift and squat at the same time with group exercise happening. So I suppose looking forward, that's one thing I'm really looking forward to showcasing what we're doing with our Gen 4 gyms to, to the world, to be honest. Along with that, so we're, we've got um, a six-week challenge happening at the end of the year, which is going to involve a very big Australian sporting icon, mm-hmm. which I'm super excited about. I got to work with him earlier in the year. So we're bringing a bit of something different to a product at the end of the year. And we've, we've also made a very big concerted effort to increase our online engagement. You know, traditionally, um, you know, a, a, a 247 brand didn't really have a foot in that space. You know, we, that space is for, for boutiques and um, uh, for gyms that really sell the experience, but for 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 your general 247, you didn't have that, but there's no reason why we shouldn't. Mm-hmm. So we, we have started the podcast, which is slowly giving our members a bit more applicable information, albeit filtered through my very nerdy brain. Um, uh, That's going to be be sent out. So I'm hoping that we can continue that for a long time to provide our members with the tools they need to get in the best shape of their life in the shortest time possible. Done the jet swing. But also a lot more content on YouTube and and we ventured out into the brave world of TikTok. So (laughs) it is a brave world. Holy moly. People are ruthless on that. But um I've yeah, just been thinking
1: about starting my own TikTok, so it's good to know.
2: <laughs> yeah, prepare yourself. Just, <laughs> it's, it's great, Don't look, But the engagement's incredible. It's, you know, people are on it all the time, and you know, but they're they're very willing to give their opinion and yeah. and that's okay. That's what I yeah. took the format's there for. But maybe yeah, I'm, I'm looking to expand our, our presence digitally. And what we're doing, you know, brick more to gyms, of course, as well. So there's a lot, a lot of really exciting things to happen with us. Wow. In, in it reminds
1: me of when COVID hit and I was still doing J Series up until that point. And then the gyms closed and, and very quickly Jets adapted into that online app space and, and putting everything on there so that people could still work out at home. And has this? do you think this, is, this acceleration has come from that or was it in the pipeline a bit earlier?
2: Maybe it was in the pipeline, to be honest. But the, um, I suppose what, what COVID has done is allowed us to either, one, realign our strategy to the, to the current market or double down on what, what we were really doing beforehand. And what we found is our strategy beforehand was was correct. What we want to do with JETS is, is the right direction. But we sort of need to, need to make a few tweaks to, um, to encompass that world, the, the digital world. And we, we learned a lot. So we, we learned what worked sort of from a business point of view, what is replicatable on mass and on scale to be profitable. And, um, and, and what we want to do is, you know, obviously provide everyone with a really good um, fitness experience and to, to, to get the best results of their lives, that's for sure. But we've also got to understand as the well, there's a lot of business owners in our network that need to make, make their money. So we need to make whatever product we do, be it digitally or, or, or in club, profitable for that business owner as well so it's a it's a it's a a challenge sometimes because you want to sort of put all your eggs in this basket but sort of the the monetary return from all that fitness just isn't there sometimes so it's um it's definitely changed the way we think about things but um look we're we're pretty certain in our direction and um all the stats and the the trends at the moment are trending in that um that direction jets look jets itself was, was born in a recession. And, uh, and now we're sort of seeing that, that, um, uh, that climate, you know, perhaps happen again right now. So we know we're recession proof and we're gonna come out of whatever happens in the next few years on top, for yeah. sure.
1: And what could, for someone who hasn't been to a Jets gym before, but they're thinking about it, um, what can they expect when they walk through the door?
2: Uh, an incredible club manager that's gonna hold your hand, as, as you know, Simon, the, yeah. the uh, entire way. And that's what really sets us apart, we're, we, you know, we have state-of-the-art equipment. That's that's a no-brainer. You know, we have space to move to do whatever style of training you want in it. Be it CrossFit, be it bodybuilding, be it powerlifting, aerobics. You know, Pilates if that's your thing. You can do that to some degree within a Jets gym. But what separates us is our humanity. Mm-hmm. And look, we, we we are very good. there's to play like tooting Jets on here. We hire really well. We only hire good people. And that's for a reason, because they represent the equipment and and what you can do in the club. And um, when you walk into a Jets gym, you're going to have a a club manager that actually cares um, and actually wants the best for you and and your results, which is why they'll give you the the right direction, point you in the right direction, and check up with you um, uh, along the way as well. It's the culture, it's the feel, it's the vibe. And that's something we've been trying to generate for 15 years now, um, we're really good at it, and um, we are. Um, we, we're very proud of that feeling you have when you're walking to a Jets club.
1: Yeah, no, it is. It is a good feeling to go in, and, and you know, it's, it's got a good community as well. And I see mm-hmm. with some of the last. I still um, follow, yeah, Jets on online, and even though I'm not a member at the moment, um, they're, they're hitting the beach with their six week challenges as well, and joining with other clubs and, and connecting up as well. And it's really good to see. Um, bringing people together in all different walks of life and and it doesn't cost an arm and a leg you mentioned f45 a few times and and you often see in the, in the gym space that you know particularly if you're about to come a dad again like once you're a parent finding time and money to to put to yourself as opposed to a family life can be a bit challenging for a lot of parents but um at jets there there's a heaps of new mums and dads there and and um, it's a it is a great feeling because it's not you know you're not breaking the bank to to get fit and healthy as well and and have some important me time as well because once you become a parent it's all consuming so can't wait mate. <laughs> <laughs> now um i'd love to hear some advice that you could give now so you've you've got two fronts we can go on it's probably maybe both both fronts and they, i have a feeling they might be a very similar response but Someone who might be struggling with their mental or physical health, um, maybe they want to get fit again or just do something, connect with the community through JETS or something like that, or even someone who's going through pregnancy or infant infant loss. Um, you've been through um, that as well. Um, both both cases, they want to get help. But they're not sure where to start. What's something mm-hmm. that you can say, drawing from your experience, both as as a dad, as, as a bloke, as someone who's gone through cancer, as the head coach of of jets australia what what could you say to them today to maybe get them started on their, their recovery journey
2: well i think uh, look i'm a big I'm a big advocate for you know everyone needs a coach if, even even coaches need coaches you know we i think about you know usain bolt or the people who are this is just me taking you back to fitness again i do this a lot but if you look at anyone at the top of their craft or the top of their sport they have someone programming for them looking after them so if we know we want to sort of start a journey of sorts, we need a mentor. We need a mentor or a coach to, um, to help us out. And, you know, that could be a personal trainer. It could be just a club manager at your local Jets gym. It could be that, you know, you listen to the Personal Best Podcast and you, are, and you start to understand the principles that we're talking about and you have sort of a, a virtual coach. But you need someone looking after you. Now, after you've sort of got that person who can point you in the right direction, then you can start learning. And one thing that I'm a big proponent of is that your body is an integrated system. The way you think affects the way you feel. The way you feel affects the way you eat, the way you feet eat. It uh, affects the way you sleep, the way you sleep, affects the way you train. Everything is this crazy, integrated web. So we know that if we want to feel better, yet yeah, we can start with exercising. It's going to get us to some point. But then we sort of need to understand that the way we sleep affects, affects everything, the way we eat affects everything, you know the way, the way we sit under artificial light affects our biology as well. So it's just this understanding that um, you know we need to think about this holistic approach, all those precision nutrition put it, this deep health continuum. Mm-hmm. You know we, we are not just the sum of our workouts, but the sum of, uh, of how we do everything. How you do anything is how you do everything. So my advice is sort of to get a coach or to get a mentor and often that just starts with a conversation. You don't have to commit to anything um, uh, at all and then it's, it starts with understanding your body is this amazing integrated system and that once you start exercising right or if you decide to start eating right, there'll be a snowball effect into another part of your lifestyle, then lean in lean in and start to feel how, how um, you know, you eating broccoli in the middle of the day makes you sleep better at night. And then once you start connecting those dots, everything else sort of starts to fall into place. And then you become like me and become a very compulsive person, understanding that you know, how to optimize yourself is a really important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a it's a beautiful thing as well. So I think, I think that's where, I think that's the advice that I would give. And then we're not in this alone. You know, yep. never, ever always find someone to, to share with that. People are always willing to help.
1: Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful advice. Um, but I've really enjoyed our conversation today. I could talk to you all day, um, but I'll leave you with one more one more thing to throw it over to you to plug something that you're passionate about, or maybe a good mm-hmm. resource, good TV show that you're watching, um, good workout that you're enjoying at the moment, whatever you want to plug is up to you. Um, the mic's over to you.
2: Excellent. We talked about the podcast, personal best podcast, plug that. But there is a television show that I watched recently called dispatches from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. It, I watch some television, not, not a lot, but every now and then a show will come up that changes my perspective on things. And this is one of them. It's got Jason Segal in it, you know, and from, um, um, Oh golly meeting meeting Sarah Marshall and mm-hmm. um, how I met your mother. So I think he wrote it and produced it, but it's just a very interesting perspective on on life. Look, mate, I don't often recommend people sitting in front of the television for 10 hours, but this one's worth your time. I can't remember what streaming service it's on, but it really changed the way I think and the way I feel, which is um, a hard thing to do through media these days. So Mm -hmm. Dispatches from Elsewhere is my recommendation.
1: All right. I'm sure to check it out next. I've actually just run out of a show to watch, so that's that's my next one. Um But it's been an amazing um, chat with you today. So grateful to take some time out of your day and and have a chat for mindful men, but also for for mums and dads out there and other blokes out there keen to get physical again. So thank you so much.
2: My pleasure, Simon. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, that's a wrap for today's episode, and I hope you got some value from it. If anything triggered your mental health today, please reach out to your support networks. Also, if you loved what you heard, be sure to subscribe to the show and share it with your mates. For more from Mindful Men, you can check us out on Instagram and YouTube, and I'll throw the links to these pages in the show notes below. But until next time, stay
2: mindful.